Hemp, CBD, cannabis. Are these all the same thing? If you ask consumers on the mass market, most would answer, maybe? All of these words come from the same place, the cannabis sativa plant. It's been prohibited since the 1930s, but is now re-emerging as legalization advances in the United States. Brittany Carbone, founder and CEO of Tonic, manages her entire supply chain of hemp-based CBD products in New York, while pushing for better regulations for the industry. The mission as like hemp farmers and people who are trying to push those boundaries of cannabinoid therapies and things like that, it's not about getting people high, it's just making more effective medicine, right? Yeah. That's what it's all about, making a more effective product. I'm Colleen King. I'm Carolyn Kissick. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress today for a look into the hemp market, where we'll get a better idea of what these three-letter acronyms really mean. Sorceress. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome to Cannabis Week. And this episode, we are talking about hemp and CBD, CBD products specifically in the state of New York. It's booming. It is booming out here. And we wanted to get the perspective of somebody working in this market because they're doing it in a strategically different way than the states that we've we've lived in. So we could learn a little bit more. So you could learn a little bit more. There's a lot of similarities to what we've learned in the California market, but also differences, right? And it's just kind of crazy how different the states can be, even though we're working on the same problem. <laughs> yeah, there's a point where she talks about New Yorkers sort of getting the reputation of being a little bit like harsh in relation to the difference of California culture, which is much more soft. She was saying, you know, we're doing it differently because we're going to make sure everyone's taken care of. And if that feels headstrong, there's nothing to really apologize for. And I really respect that. As an East Coaster that sometimes gets told I'm a little blunt, it was really rad to hear her rationalize, like, how that's actually very effective in terms of them shaping the industry there. Manhattan, while it's booming for basically everything else, is not the center for where most things are happening with hemp. It's actually upstate where the hemp has to be grown has to be out in kind of agricultural territory. And so Binghamton is one of these towns that is just kind of coming into a rebirth of what it was before. I guess it used to Northrop Grumman had offices there, uh, IBM. And then a lot of the industry left, went somewhere else. But now you have companies like Canopy coming in and putting, it was like $150 million into hemp cultivation up in Binghamton. Yeah, it, and it was interesting to see this town that definitely had a heyday, right? There's a river there and there's a small, you know, sort of adorable downtown. There's a college there. And just thinking about what this town is going to look like in five years from this kind of investment, from this kind of agricultural boom that's happening. Interesting thing I was getting into the other day for my tequila work was the largest deals that have happened in the tequila world because tequila has been an emerging industry for the last 20 years. You know, you see something like 150 million going into Binghamton. You're like, wow, that's a lot of money. And then I go and look at the tequila industry and it was like $775 million back in 2007 was what Brown Foreman bought Herradura for. And so we're just at the beginning of how big these deals are going to be. You know what I mean? Like $150 million is a lot of money, but five years into this, it's going to be huge huge massive we're not there yet but it's going to happen <laughs> it happens with everything yeah absolutely herador was 2007 and then patron was just purchased for 5.1 billion whoa you know so that's six times more so let's talk a little bit about hemp itself hemp is actually defined by a percentage point based on the federal definition so hemp is a version of cannabis sativa that has had THC, the part that gets you high, bred out of it so that it tests below 0.3%. So what does it leave us with if you're breeding THC out of cannabis? It leaves you with a bunch of other cannabinoids. So cannabinoids are a class of chemical compounds that have measurable effects. Think of caffeine in coffee, same idea. And you're going to see these terms 
that are going to get more popular depending on where you live. So right now you might be familiar with CBD, but up-and-coming cannabinoids on the roster are CBG, CBN, there's hundreds of them. And the cannabinoids are most effective when the compounds work together. So if you're looking for any kind of products in hemp or CBD, we recommend that you look for full-spectrum or broad-spectrum products. And Brittany talks about this in the interview. Basically, that means that you have a wide range of cannabinoids as opposed to isolating one, like just CBD. The theory of cannabinoids working together rather than working in an isolated form is called the entourage effect. And in our Compassion episode, which also dropped this week, Joe does a really good job going into detail about this, how it works with the body. He talks about the bell-shaped response curve and a bunch more. So that's something that can be included on a label that you can easily differentiate full-spectrum, broad-spectrum versus just CBD. Now, the science of the entourage effect is there. It just hasn't been widely studied. Yeah, for sure. Science has a long way to go. We're just starting to look into this stuff. That's been a huge detriment of prohibition is only, I think it's the University of Mississippi. Mississippi was the only public institution in all of the United States that was allowed to grow cannabis for a long time. Like, that's crazy. And the cannabis that they're growing and doing research on is not the same cannabis that we're all smoking and consuming. It can be very confusing to get this kind of information. Do you remember when we got to Binghamton and we called the hemp group and we said, hey, we want to come and check out your fields. We'd love to see. We'd love to see what you have going on in the fields. And they just emailed back saying, it's February. There's nothing growing. And we were like, Oh, man, California, you've done it again. Uh, We really are spoiled and forget that we don't have to deal with that. (laughs) The ground is frozen solid. That's why we're not growing hemp right now. Okay, got it. Noted. Big thanks to Brittany for her time and best of luck to Tonic. And let's get into the interview. Here we go. So I just moved here a couple of months ago from California and CBD is everywhere here. It's in the bodegas, it's in grocery stores, it's in yoga studios, like yeah, it's everywhere you turn if it yeah. Why is it everywhere and where is that? I'm assuming that that's coming from somewhere different than the way that you're sourcing your products. It is huge. It's funny because New York is also like a place that has been in the news a lot for their strict regulations around CBD, especially in places like coffee shops and in cafes and restaurants, all about like adding CBD to food and beverage has been something that New York has really kind of laid down the law about. And that's something you're going to start to see in October. Um, It's going to be very difficult for cafes to continue to get away with that. According to the New York City Department of Health, you're now like contaminating the food source because, again, it's not FDA regulated quite yet. A very interesting kind of limbo that we're in because... The FDA does have certain rules and regulations around CBD. Right now, they're kind of just treating it like a dietary supplement. So there are certain manufacturing standards, but they still haven't just made these clear decisions of, can it be added to food? Is it a dietary supplement? So right now, what you're getting is everybody just doing what they can and seeing what they can get away with, which is kind of what the cannabis industry is built on. It's not as evil as that sounds. Seeing what you get away with, some people, unfortunately, do it in an evil way of this is just a quick cash grab because... But you said CBD is everywhere. It's such a buzzword right now. So that's really why you're seeing it in every bodega, every like smoke shop, tobacco shop, vape shop. They're putting CBD dispensary in their window because they know it's going to drive people in the, into the door. Really, that's where as a consumer, you start to have to educate yourself a little bit more. Where is this other CBD coming from? Is it coming from China? Is it synthetic? Is it coming from other states? Yeah, so like especially when the CBD industry was a little bit younger, there was a lot of product that was coming in from Europe and it was a lot of hemp that's grown for like seed and fiber productions, very much industrial hemp. That kind of hemp plant, it won't produce very high resin flour, so that means like the cannabinoid and terpene content isn't going to be very high. So what they have to do is grow a lot, a lot, a lot of that kind of hemp and process a lot, a lot, a lot of it and squeeze all of the CBD out of it they can. And they can, like there is CBD in there, so shipping like the unfinished product to the U.S. and then the actual CBD products would be manufactured in the United States Mm -hmm. and that's how they would be able to get away with saying it's 
farm bill compliant because it's U.S. made. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, it's like all just like how they were wording it, but the hemp wasn't being grown in the U.S. The hemp wasn't grown to the farm bill standards, which are actually as like stringent as like the 2014 farm bill was. The good things about it was that it demanded organic growing practices, didn't allow for any pesticides or any kind of inorganic fertilizers or anything like that. And it really kind of held farmers accountable. Your farm had to be inspected by the state prior to harvest and had to make sure that you were following all these rules. At least if you knew you were getting farm bill compliant hemp, you knew that you could trust it to be a clean product. Then it goes to like the manufacturing at that point. That's kind of where the checks and balances were falling off was let's just say you grew organic hemp, you grew everything like the way you're supposed to, but it was moldy. Some processors would take moldy hemp because if you're bringing it down to isolate, you can kind of get rid of that. But then there's just certain things. If there's like lead in the soil, like things like that, like that just, you need to have these tests like in these lab reports because you can be as a farmer thinking that you're doing everything right and it's not necessarily the farmer's fault but the processor then takes on that responsibility of okay i need to make sure that i'm testing this material that i'm about to process i need to make sure that i'm testing the post-processed material before it goes into that bottle that the consumer is going to have yeah we get our master batches tested our broad spectrum and our full spectrum distillate we get tested for potency residual solvents heavy metals and pesticides so the pesticide Analysis is a double check because we obviously test our biomass. So even though we don't spray any pesticides or use any, why we still test it for that is because there could be other farmers in the area that spray it or then it can go airborne or like run off. So we just want to make sure that nothing like that has contaminated our crop. The potency, obviously, for formulation standards, it's super important to be testing your master batch before you're formulating it into other products. And then the residual solvents is actually super important. So the solvent is how the cannabinoids and the terpenes and all, everything is actually extracted from the plant and turned into the oil. So everybody has this idea of CO2 extraction as being like the cleanest extraction method, which in a way it is. Even in CO2 extraction, you have to introduce ethanol to it. So ethanol is just like an alcohol extraction. If you think of like just how you would extract any kind of herb by like soaking it in alcohol, you know, there's a little bit more to it, but basic idea, right? So you would want to make sure that alcohol or whatever kind of solvent is being used, especially in like butane extractions, really risky, right? Or whatever solvent is responsibly recovered. So how they do that is through like or path distillation. As long as you're doing it correctly, even if it's an ethanol extract, you can have a very clean and safe product. But if it's not recovered correctly, then you could be ingesting that solvent that could be very toxic and high levels. So CO2 extract, what I was going with that is that you're still introducing ethanol in that process because you actually have to introduce ethanol to the process to remove like fats and waxes and lipids and kind of the plant waste from it. Even in this very clean kind of extraction, there could still be ethanol that hasn't been properly recovered. And then from from there, you know, we use those master batches to make our individual products. Each individual product is then tested once again for, for potency analysis to make sure that all the calculations and filling was correct and that what you're getting in that bottle is exactly what, what it says on the label. We extract our other herbs that go into the blends, like the ashwagandha, lemon balm, passion flower. We extract all those in small batches and hand pour and, and blend all the materials together to kind of keep that human-like touch and, and intention behind it. Tell me a little bit more about the farm. How did you choose your genetics and what are you finding out from that? That I was reading you have been planting other herbs near them to see if it's like affecting the terpene yeah, development, pest right. control in nature, you know, put things together and see how they work together. Cause they usually will, they'll usually find, find ways to coexist in interesting ways. Yeah. I mean, hemp genetics are super interesting because you think like hemp is one thing and like weed is another, but when you put it all under the umbrella of like cannabis, sativa L, like it's really one plant. It's just kind of these different, like, genetic expressions of the plant. When you grow hemp for CBD production, you're growing it in a very horticultural fashion. You're growing it exactly like you would grow for the recreational cannabis market. You're growing for big high resin buds that have a lot of cannabinoids, terpenes, and all of that in it. When you're growing hemp for more industrial purposes like textiles, genetics, high resin CBD or like high resin hemp genetics rather is a fairly new thing, right? So it's a fairly new development in the cannabis industry. The Crawford brothers of Oregon CBD, they really have been the pioneers of that. They realized where the hemp industry was going in like, you know, 2013, 2014. They've really started to 
take their very vast knowledge of cannabis genetics and agriculture and they started to crossbreed and really work on stabilizing hemp below 0.3% THC but trying to help those other cannabinoids really develop because they were seeing that the CBD market was really growing and that to backtrack a little bit with the 2014 farm bill this now allowed hemp to be grown again in the U.S. for the first time in a very long time. What the U.S. government was pushing through this kind of like research project was getting genetics from Canada, Israel, Italy, importing them through like the government's DEA like import license. And the, all those genetics were very much the industrial kind of textile-based genetics. So that didn't leave a lot of great options when you wanted to cultivate for CBD. Because like I was saying before, you can squeeze CBD out of that, but it's really not the most efficient, sustainable, or like effective way to do that. So yeah. they understood that as long as we can keep everything below 0.3 THC, because that's the only requirement right. to classify it as industrial hemp, right. we just need to keep it below that 0.3% THC levels. That doesn't mean that there can't be a lot of more development of, of CBD and CBG. They started to develop these genetics that were stable below 0.3% THC, but still grew like a regular cannabis plant. There's just been offshoots from there, but they were really, like I said, the pioneers of it. So we were super excited to find somebody that we were able to work with that had an in with them because they have a kind of extensive wait list at this point. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I got, right. so when we um, grew last year, the group that we were working with, um, because we don't have a, uh, big greenhouse built out on our property. So we had to partner with somebody to uh, propagate our seeds because we grow, uh, we plant rooted plugs rather because in New York, it's difficult to start from seed, but <laughs> yeah. also to start from clones would be very difficult because like they're not very strong, you know, uh, and I mean, mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're planted to like the wind and stuff like that, it could be sure. hard for them to take. So rooted plugs is definitely the, the best way to plant, especially in this environment. So we planted special sauce, Hawaiian haze, Hoover haze, Electra, and those main ones that you hear about now. And I'm really excited to see where it goes from here. We got some new seeds that we're like working on on an indoor grow. It's called like Stormy Daniels and like Trump. Like, <laughs> so they're getting like just as weird as like the other yeah. like regular oh cannabis strains. So like it's really great to see hemp genetics come about and people shifting gears because there's so much like knowledge and science like in the cannabis industry and there's all these like geniuses that have been like underground for a while or just like so cool to see how they adapt to the industry because for a while it's just people wanted THC or that's like what people thought that they wanted maybe it's all they knew right so that's what growers did they manipulated these genetics to produce super high THC and that's how kind of CBD got pushed out of most of the uh, cannabis that we consume right so now it's just like the consumers are kind of driving the demand where it's like well now we want CBD so you kind of reverse all like the crossbreeding you did kind of just take that in a different direction and now you're spiking up those CBD levels, driving down the THC levels because they're antagonists, right? So if you're having a super high THC strain, like there will likely be little to no CBD in it and, right. and vice versa. Right now, like they're definitely all like hybrids just because of the amount of like crossbreeding and the amount of like different genetics that go into like this one strain. Within the next couple of years, like the Crawford brothers are already coming out with a more kind of stable um, CBG variety, which I'm really excited about. And I think that those kinds of advancements are just gonna keep coming because now I think we understand as consumers that we want all these different cannabinoids, right? We want this like very full spectrum. It's kind of become like a buzzword, but when you really think about it, like that's what you want. Like you smoke like dirt weed, you know what I mean? Like from back in the day, like it's actually like, that's like real cannabis. Yeah, Yeah, because it's just like how it naturally expresses itself with all the different, you know, variables at play. So it's, um. It's interesting. I think that we'll get, like, it's going to come full circle, right? We're going to get back to, like, smoking the weed that people were smoking in the 60s and, like, you know. It makes you feel better. It It really really does. does. It's, like, because you you definitely, like, I'm sure you've you've heard it so many times. Like, older people, they're like, I can't smoke this weed you kids smoke today. Like, yeah, this this isn't the same thing. And it's not the same thing. Like, it's very different. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was living in Oregon, there were so many, like, wonderful strains coming out at that time that were more balanced where... You could smoke it and not just get totally like right. knocked Dr. Gord, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but and I think that that's um, something that I would like love to see in the hemp industry going forward. Like as legislation progresses as well, is just like that 03 percent is such like an arbitrary number. If we were able to raise that to even like let's say two percent or three percent CBD, the I'm uh, sorry THC, the um, amount of 
other compounds that would be able to, d to develop in a much more real and therapeutic way, it would create such a more effective product. You know what I mean? Like just allowing that THC to develop a little bit more means higher CBD levels, higher you know, uh, levels of the minor cannabinoids, greater terpene development. It just creates a much more well-rounded and balanced product. So you don't have to like kind of cut off these pathways as quite as much and um, you can allow for just more of like a full development of the plant. And I think that that is when you can really get like maximum healing benefits because uh, right now, like I was saying, like full spectrum is definitely like a buzzword when it comes to CBD and full spectrum extracts. Um, they've definitely been shown to be more effective than an isolated product because they all work together in a very specific way. You know, the whole cannabis plant, um, it works with your endocannabinoid system. But right now, even a full spectrum extract, you know, you're not gonna have very high levels of those minor cannabinoids. Even as much of a full spectrum as you can get with such low C uh, THC percentages, you really just can't have very high levels of, of everything else. Just allowing for all those little bit of a higher THC percentage still won't cause intoxicating effects. You're still not gonna get like, ooh, you know, super yeah, high right. from it. Like I don't, I don't want to say it's not psychoactive because sometimes there's certain people that get a little bit, totally, a little bit loopy from CBD. So yeah. I don't want to say that, but not intoxicating, right? Yeah. So like that's really like the point like if you want to keep it like safe and you want to keep it like so this isn't a product that people are abusing for like the psychoactive effects um you know raising that limit to two percent is not gonna yeah make not a, gonna big be a difference yeah. to that mission the mission as like hemp farmers and people who are trying to push those boundaries of cannabinoid therapies and things like that it's not about getting people high it's just making more effective medicine right it, yeah. that's what it's all about making a more effective product i hate having to draw the line between like oh no this isn't cannabis it is cannabis like let's uh, let's just change like the narrative around cannabis take away that idea that cannabis is something that has to be getting you super high let's just look at it as a plant and this is the plant and this is all the different expressions of this plant and its abilities so i think like taking that approach to it because especially early on in the cbd industry to even like you know get credit card processing to be able to do business to have your products on the shelves no pot leaves on it no like anywhere that's like even suggesting that it's in the same family as cannabis right like right. now those lines are getting blurred a little bit more there's definitely more of that understanding happening but on a more regulatory level is where it needs to happen a little bit more um, people need to stop being so afraid of kind of putting them together right and I think that that's something else that with this new legislation that's introduced in New York it makes me pretty excited because it doesn't necessarily say anything about the THC limits changing, but it is very careful to not state 0.3% THC anywhere. It says like a certain like limit of THC, like a stated limit set forth by like the uh, you know Office of Cannabis Oversight or whatever is gonna, right. they're going to be making in New York. You know, like so they're not saying that it's 0.3. They're saying that there will be a limit. But it doesn't specify 0.3, and like, be, and now you become um, a cannabinoid farmer rather than like a oh. hemp farmer. So like industrial mm -hmm. hemp, um, protected under like the 2018 Farm Bill and everything, would be almost like a separate license and a cannabinoid farmer, which would be like growing um, like hemp cannabis. They call it, yeah, which is right. like for CBD production. So like, they're now kind of shifting things a little bit. That I, and I feel like it's going into that direction where they're. You know, that industrial hemp will remain at that 0.3% THC. That language stays the same. But now when you're growing for that cannabinoid development, now the rules can be shifted a little bit, right? And I yeah. think that's what needs to happen. So I'm super excited that of that kind of vague language in the law because I'm like, all right, this, there's a little bit of hope here. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> it's really interesting to hear you talk about really big farms. There's so many pieces of hemp that can be used. Theoretically, you could be a massive hemp farm and be growing your hemp for industrial use, but you could also be taking all of those flowers and distilling them down to CBD as an additional byproduct, but you're not growing it for that intention. It would be very con confusing for the consumers right. to figure that out. And so as things scale, because this is such an emerging market, yeah. what are some of yeah. the challenges that you're finding there? And you know, what do you think just as a business owner, what do you think you're gonna be able to do? And yeah, what so are you seeing other people do as well? Yeah. What you were talking about earlier, as far as like, where's all this other CBD coming from? The way that we handle everything from beginning to end is completely tonic and completely unique to us, right? And just having, that is something that I don't wanna lose as we scale, but it's definitely a challenge because 
when you're dealing with these large-scale manufacturers, they're built to scale it, but it makes a difference to the end consumer. And, you know, when you know that you have something that is helping people heal and it's like not just something that people like, oh, like this is just like a, a fun thing. Like this is really right. like helping people like in a real way and like something that's like should be really taken like at like for their health and their just emotional, physical well-being. Take a lot of care and consideration into that. That's something as we're growing, it's definitely been a huge challenge to figure out like, okay, how am I going to scale this? Because yeah. like now we're getting to that point where like, all right, now if we're going to think about like getting like these contracts with like larger, like let's just say like a chain of supermarkets mm -hmm. or a chain of health stores, sure. something like that. Like, right. And you have to fulfill a thousand bottles in one order. That, that's going to be difficult for us at, at this point, right? But we're hiring a few more people and just getting a few more hands in there and we're actually in the process of building our own extraction lab. I'm trying to figure out different kinds of kind of equipment to source to be able to scale up production but keep like the the hand touch to it. Larger like mixing equipment or like larger containers to yeah, like put everything totally, in, you know right, what I mean? Yeah. Then less like something that's like a little bit better than like a syringe and like input. Yeah, yeah so like things totally. like that. So yeah, and I think it's possible too what you said with yeah, sometimes you just need a bigger mixing bowl or something yeah. to help you chop things up, right. you know? And it's like, <laughs> it doesn't have to be an overhaul of the whole system. Sometimes right. you just need a bigger set of scissors, yeah, right? Exactly, <laughs> right. The trials and tribulations so far have been comical. It's like one of those like tragedy plus time is comedy and I can laugh at it now, but like not laughing when like about $5,000 worth of product literally explodes in your face. Yes. <laughs> This machine completely <laughs> malfunctioned and just like, it's <laughs> like, oh, like it start oozing out. Like I was like, this cannot be happening, and it was heartbreaking. But I'm just like, okay, take two, just breathe, and yeah, get through it. Yeah, so we, like uh, every step of the way. I mean, it's crazy to think that just a little over a year ago, uh, we moved upstate May. First, 2018, we planted our first crop June 1st, 2018. But before that, I was doing this all out of my parents' kitchen on Long Island. And then this time last year, I was in a little basement office by myself. It looked like a Breaking Bad style lab situation. Like literally, like, my husband helped me build out like a clean room, like everything covered in like like the star plastic with the zip walls and like, like you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it's like when ET, like at the end of ET, like that's like what it looked like. <laughs> And, um, and now we're in like, you know, in Binghamton in the um, Kaufman Incubator, which has like, we have like an oh, actual yeah, lab, yeah, yeah, we have an actual wet lab and we have, you know, a bigger office where we do all of our shipping and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like crazy to think of how much can happen in just that one year's time. So now hopefully we can recap next year and I'll be in our new FDA compliant lab yeah. extracting our own hemp. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> That's awesome. I was reading one of the articles that you, you wrote in. You said, we're, we're living in a time where people are stressed the fuck out. Yeah. And so there's also, I think there's this magic to the industry that you're working in. Everyone that I know that's in it, for the most part, you know, the good actors are doing this for something that's like bigger than themselves. We're business owners, but we're also doing this for political reasons right. or personal reasons or medical reasons. Yeah, I mean, my story is like, you know, first time I smoked weed, like I remember I was like, I really like this. Like I can get down with this because I, you know, suffered from depression like my whole life. Like, even when I was a kid, you don't know how to like recognize that or even do anything about it. You don't really know what it is. I just was a moody, like bratty kid. I got a nickname Bratney from my from my family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I started discovering weed, I was like, this actually makes me like feel better. But being 16 and smoking all the time, you know, mom wasn't super thrilled about that. And she, not that she was like super against cannabis. Again, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of stigma. And she's like, I can't have my teenagers smoking weed all the time. Made me stop smoking weed. It was actually drug testing for THC. And the doctors put me on Xanax and antidepressants. And it made me feel terrible. I started to abuse the Xanax. That's when it was like my aha moment of no matter what people are telling me, no matter like my teachers, the school counselors, and my doctor, and my parents, I know that this weed is a lot better for me than whatever they're trying to push. That was kind of just like when I realized that like, I know that this is medicine. Like you said, like this is yeah. not what they're saying it is. This isn't like that evil, whatever. Yeah. Like this is, this is good stuff. And there is 
I want, like anything else, can be abused, right? Like, that was when I realized, okay, this is the good stuff. When I was working as a personal trainer and trying to do everything the most natural way possible, it was hard for me to find something that worked as well as cannabis to like help with my anxiety and depression, but like I just couldn't be high all day anymore. Like one hit too many and all of a sudden I couldn't count reps anymore for my clients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was just like trying to find something. And then it was actually my friend who moved out to California and he came, we came back and he was just like, yeah, the CBD thing really seems like it's like blowing up. And I like didn't really understand why I would need it if I'm consuming cannabis all the time, but then realized that the cannabis I'm consuming doesn't have CBD in it. So yeah. I was like, okay, like I, I believe in cannabis. I might as well try this out. Like, and it worked a lot better than I actually expected. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, right. I think every like cannabis, like, you know, people like consider themselves like cannabis purists and stuff like that. They look at hemp and it's like, Ugh, it's not real. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> totally <laughs> real weed. Yeah. Like, so like, and that's kind of how I was going into it. But yeah. it like, even with that mindset, it still was giving me these results. And I'm like, wow, like this really, I do feel better. The endocannabinoid system, like, holy shit, why isn't anybody talking about this? I'm a personal trainer. Like I went through like pretty rigorous nutrition and biology educations on my training path. And nobody's ever mentioned the endocannabinoid system and how this could be what's stopping my client from sleeping, losing weight, I mean, all these things that have these huge effects on us physiologically nobody's talking about it so then that's when I really started to dig into the research and start to combine CBD with things like ashwagandha with other herbs like lemon balm and passion flower that regulate GABA levels and a complementary way to CBD combining it with black seed oil like cold pressed black human seed which is like part of the base oils in all of our tinctures because that has this like really great antioxidant anti-inflammatory like antibacterial and blood sugar regulating so all these things that are like yeah. the entourage effect doesn't have to just be how THC and CBD work together it can be how THC CBD and all these other different plants work together when you combine them as well then like a lot of people they they have that like aha moment with CBD and cannabis when they stop taking it you know you go through your first bottle and you're like I don't know if that really did anything so then a few days go by and you know you're not taking it anymore and you're like Oh, like I'm like a crabby asshole again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, like, I'm not sleeping well anymore. Like, yeah. Wow, that really was do doing something. I think, like you said, like just like the science and like the understanding around it as that changes. Like, I think that's gonna like everybody's like perception around it will change, and it's like people understand that this is just like it's like a multivitamin, kind of tying this back into the agricultural system of it. This is a big part of it. People understand our endocannabinoid systems were never so out of whack because hemp and cannabis used to be just part of our ecosystem. Yeah. So when hemp would just grow everywhere, like George Washington was saying, like, you know, make the most out of the hemp plant and cows were grazing on it. Animals were eating the hemp and we were eating the animals. It was just in our environment and in our systems the same way that now antibiotics and hormones and steroids right. are in our systems, totally. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like whatever's in our food sources is in us in a very, very real way. It's all very much interconnected. So like there's actually been a pretty strong correlation between when hemp was completely like decimated from our environment and when all these like autoimmune diseases started to pop up a lot more. Inflammation, so, yeah, right? Like right. bad. Yep. Yeah. So there's definitely a relation there. And yeah. so it's like, you know, people are skeptical of like, Oh, well, like, how come I never heard of this before? How come I never, like, because it used to just be something that we didn't have to think about, but yeah. then they removed it from our environment, so now we have to supplement with it. There's certain vitamins and minerals and stuff like that that it's just hard to get a lot of in your everyday diet, so you understand that you have to take a vitamin and supplement, right? Right, so, right. Same kind of thing with cannabis. It's a deficiency. Right. Like, yeah. I think society's had a major <laughs> yeah. deficiency since we yeah. made everything illegal. And it's interesting, too, because it's just that it wasn't around in our lifetime, you right. know? So people are like, why haven't I heard of this? Like, yeah. Where we are in humanity is still, I mean, we're still at the very start of this yeah. stuff. Like, we just started <laughs> writing things down, like, a couple thousand years ago. Right. Computers have existed in our lifetime, and we've seen deficiencies in other kind of food, too. When corn started being grown in the States in, like, a very substantial way in the South, and they didn't understand the nixtamalization process. You have to soak corn in a alkaline solution to help the calcium and niacin develop out of the raw material. The people that were growing it in the States weren't doing that. And so they were looking at corn as a whole food because it was coming from Mexico and Mexico didn't have a problem. Right. Well, Mexico was nixtamalizing their corn, so they didn't have a niacin or a, a calcium deficiency, but the deep South had a huge problem with rickets 
for right, a while yeah. because they were eating corn and they thought, you know, we make polenta, we make everything, right. but they weren't doing it right. So they had a major vitamin deficiency. Right. And once they figured it out, that problem went away. All of our modern diseases are linked to inflammation in some yep. way. Yep. And if you really pay attention, you can feel your body in yeah. that way. And I'd say as somebody that's never really used cannabis before, when they take CBD, I think that they're almost waiting for a very marked difference to happen. They should feel something almost like you should feel high when you smoke, you know, like yeah. they're waiting for something like that to happen. And it doesn't because it just brings you to like being normal. Right. right like it's right. just like, that's literally the goal is to just be normal. Yeah. Like, which, right. Cause you don't really realize how unnormal you yeah. are. You know what right. I mean? Like you don't, because you get used to just like feeling like crap, you know what I mean? And that's becomes your baseline. When I went to your launch party at the hotel, it was so wonderful to see so many women there and so many people of color and I know right. that New York's working really hard to make equity a big thing before any of these things get right. passed. Like you're putting your foot down and saying, yeah, like, no, no, this has to be in right. here before we, exactly. before we go any yeah, further. So. Like we don't want legalization just because it's legalization. Like we want it done the right way for sure. And that's, I think that's something super like respectable about the New York market. We're not taking that easy way out. It's like, fine, we'll, we'll keep it illegal until like we do it the right way. We're banding together in such a strong way and you know, demanding that they want equity. And I think it's because New York, we've felt it in such a strong way between, you know, stop and frisk and all these things that like so clearly are racially charged kinds of, kinds of you know, um, ways that the war on drugs has manifested itself. And it's just, it's not right. And I think also as New Yorkers, like we're used to standing up and like, whatever we're feeling, we're going to say it and we're going to make sure that you know it. And you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's yeah. just not, I think that that's another like, LA versus New York thing is like people think that New York New Yorkers are like assholes right think that we're like the, the mean ones and stuff like that and in LA everybody is like shiny happy people but like it's just like New York like it's not mean it's just real like we're gonna tell you how it is right and that's just I think that that's the difference it's nobody's gonna fake a smile to you and that's the same thing with the cannabis industry nobody's gonna put on a smile and say this is all okay because now it's legal and it's we'll pretend that we didn't incarcerate black people like for this entire time and that that white people are just getting rich off of it now and smile and pretend it's okay yeah. <laughs> so like it's just like the same kind of thing that we're just like this is fucked up like we're gonna tell you that it's fucked up so the and the best way that you can get anything done is you have to come together nobody's gonna get it done on their own you know what i mean so um, it's something that I strongly believe in because I actually have kind of witnessed it firsthand but didn't really even understand it until uh, I was part of an event last year called Breaking the Grass Ceiling and I was on this panel and I was, you know, uh, then like kind of just introduced to all these different women from all these different backgrounds and just like on like talking to them and understanding kind of women's place in all of this and that there are so many of us that are kind of aligned in this vision and uh, it's all when it kind of really hit me that like, you know, I didn't really think about the time that I was arrested when I was in college, like not like, you know, put in jail, arrested, but you right. know, charges pressed against me for cannabis possession. And because, you know, I was a middle-class white woman, you know, I was going to Penn State and my parents had the $2,500 to pay to be able to, you know, just get me on a program that it was like probation for a year, like don't get arrested for a year and one day of community service and then it's expunged from my record. Right. So like, let's say my parents didn't have that twenty five hundred dollars um, that it would stay on my record. Right. Or let's say that I was a black guy. Maybe they wouldn't have even given me the option to get into that program. So like that's when I really started to think of it as like I understood my privilege, you know what I mean? And that like this is really messed up. So I knew that I couldn't be in this industry and trying to profit off of it and things like that without acknowledging that kind of aspect to it. And it's been really just like amazing. Like we donate 5% of our uh, sales each month to a different nonprofit to try to, you know, give back. But the more kind of amazing way that we kind of bring is just supporting the community itself and just like being there for any kind of event or like charity or any, whenever any business, like any woman comes to me and is like asked for like advice and starting up their business, like, I'm there. I'll tell you anything. Like, I'm, I don't have secrets. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, right. I'm not going to be like, oh, no, like that you're going to be competition. Like, no, fuck that. Like, the more people that are aligned on the same vision, the more that we can propel this industry forward in the way that we want to, right? So, like, you have to think about big picture right now because we're on the ground floor of something that, 
you know, you have to think about it in like in the long run, like 20 years from now, because yeah. right now it's like, I feel like you're in the trenches and everything like that. And, and we are, but we have to be very conscious of the way that we're doing things right now, because this is the foundation that it'll all be built on. So yeah. it's really just kind of making sure that the right people are in it with the right vision. And then that kind of determines the entire trajectory. So, yeah. I mean, there's like a group of farmers. Um, we all started out pretty much at the same time last year when the licensing opened up in New York and like, rather again rather than being like no you can't use my equipment you don't you can't see what genetics i'm using or like what kind of you know nutrient profiles like it's all shared information it's all like how can we do this together the best way especially the small farmers because again when you band together a bunch of small farmers you have some power a bunch of independent small farmers it's very easy to, to crush all of those right but yeah. when we all band together um, we can influence policy to make sure that it's protecting us, right? We can make our voices heard. It's a much kind of more amplified message that way. Right. It's a luxury to be able to have a brand, a brand war. And you know what I totally. mean? Totally. It not is. To have competition. It it's right. like a luxury when like you're just used to having to like, how do I even enter this market? Yeah, you know what I right. mean? Yeah. Like how yeah. do I even like get people to know and understand this? Totally. Like it's, so it's um like even we're trying uh, now, we're starting to implement like what I was saying when they're going to, and demand those like QR code kind of um, like verifications in New York. Um, so that's a, you know, kind of a big shakeup for the whole hemp industry because something, another provision is saying that, you know, that out of state product can exist in New York, but it has to meet New York standards. So now all it's going to change like the labeling standards yeah. and everything for out of state. Um, so what we're trying to do um, is we I actually have a, a friend who he his company like does this kind of authentication and like QR codes and like NFC technology where you can just like like the tap to pay kind of technology right, right? right so he is now just kind of transitioning that same technology into the cannabis market and I'm yeah we're gonna be using that on tonic and I am already talking to every brand that I can to let them know about this and tell them and share it with them and we're like on a mission to just like get everybody else because. I could just be like, I'm not telling you what company I'm using, like, you know what I mean? Like, right. and like now I have this technology that yeah. customer, like, no, because again, like, this is how we weed out the people who are giving this industry a bad reputation. This is how we make sure everybody's above board and making sure that consumers trust this industry yeah. and bring it to another level, right? Right. So like, that's what it's all about, is you have to, you have to elevate everybody right now because then we all win. Big thanks to Brittany for taking the time to chat with us today. If you want to follow along with what's going on with Tonic, you can find them online at tonicvibes.com or follow them on Instagram at tonic underscore CBD. Stay tuned, Sorceress fans, because coming up next, Danielle Maggio is going to take you on a musical history tour of the political and cultural movements within cannabis. And today, that means jive jazz and blues. Hey everyone, this is Danielle Maggio delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. For this segment, I want to talk about the birth of the modern American music industry and the ways in which cannabis use constructed the cultures of blues and jazz. Now, blues and jazz have evolved to become international phenomenons, and we could spend hours talking about the various subgenres and styles of each. But in the context of cannabis culture, we're talking OG classic blues and jazz from the 1920s up until the 1940s. While the therapeutic uses of cannabis have long been dismissed by political and religious leaders, as well as the academic community, the music community has embraced the medicinal herb for its cognitive abilities of expansion and experimentation. Now, before I go into the history of cannabis use in jazz and blues, I want to quickly unpack the cultural politics that led to cannabis prohibition and the interrelated issue of demonization of jazz and blues culture. So here we go. The Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 was the first national prohibition of cannabis and was drafted by a man named Harry Anslinger. Anslinger previously enforced alcohol prohibition, but once that ended in 1933, he quickly moved on to cannabis. Throughout the 30s and 40s, 
Anslinger used an obscene amount of dishonest propaganda to stoke fear amongst Americans about cannabis. He routinely supplied fictional crime stories about cannabis-induced murders and insanity to magazines and newspapers, and even produced motion pictures based on this propaganda. You've probably heard of his most famous film, Reefer Madness. Not only was Anslinger's propaganda completely dishonest, but it was incredibly racist. He went as far as to single-handedly change the term cannabis to marijuana, hence the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. Marijuana was actually a slang Spanish word that made its way to the U.S. with the increased population of Mexicans who were fleeing the Mexican Revolution after 1910. It had absolutely no place in government agencies or in the medical world. Manipulating America's xenophobic fear of non-white immigration, Anslinger decided to adopt the Mexican slang word as the new official term for cannabis. And he did this in order to make the herb sound foreign and associate it with Mexicans and Spanish-speaking individuals. Now, this is where jazz and blues come in. While cannabis first emerged on a large scale in the American Southwest, a vibrant cannabis scene developed in New Orleans, the birthplace of American jazz. New Orleans jazz musicians, most notable among them Louis Armstrong, commonly used cannabis in a communal setting while practicing and performing music. Amongst the African-American jazz communities, cannabis was called jive, and those who frequently used it were referred to as vipers. Cannabis quickly traveled up north to Harlem during the artistic renaissance, and nearly every jazz and blues performer indulged, including Cab Calloway, Billie Holiday, Fats Waller, and Mez Mesro, a clarinetist and also a famous cannabis dealer in Harlem. Now, we know that these musicians indulged from oral history, autobiographies, arrest records, and most importantly, from the music itself. In the early decades of the 20th century, Jazz was instrumental in forging the modern music industry and shifting the importance from the composer to the performer. Now, the early jazz we're discussing was intrinsically linked to the blues, both sonically and culturally. More often than not, most people think of the male-dominated, guitar-driven style of blues as being classic, although that style was not formed until the late 1940s. In fact, the first blues recordings, actually the first recordings ever in the American music industry, were done by African-American women vocalists such as Mamie Smith, Ma Rainey, and Bessie Smith, the Empress of the Blues. These pioneering women blended the sounds of the traveling vaudeville show with down-home rural blues. They sang about taboo topics such as sex, domestic violence, alcohol, bisexuality, and yes, cannabis. They are the definitive foremothers of modern recording, ushering in the American entertainment industry as we know it, and opening the door for African-American musicians to work outside of the world of minstrelsy and vaudeville. Once these music industry foremothers laid the foundation for jazz and blues, the two interrelated genres quickly began to shift the importance from the composer of the song to the performer of the song. While this may seem like a small transition now, this was a huge shift from the Western Eurocentric music tradition that placed its highest status on the composition and the notation of the composition. Suddenly, improvisation became the central creative aspect of jazz. Improvisation expressed something relevant to the current emotional and intellectual state of the musician and their interaction with the audience. It became a new way to communicate technique and skill and feeling while providing more agency and autonomy to the musicians themselves. Music historians have noted that cannabis use flourished amongst black musicians because the musicians themselves believed that the herb acted as a stimulus to creativity. Specifically, it assisted the improvisational creative mind. So back to our buddy Anslinger. Once he realized cannabis use was widespread amongst jazz musicians, 
He declared an all-out war on the community. This government-sponsored demonizing of jazz culture stemmed from two things. First, from a dislike of the fast-tempo improvised sound, which he falsely accredited to going insane or mad. And second, and much more important, from a fear that jazz music was corrupting the innocent white youth of America who, for the first time ever in the history of American culture, were idolizing black artists on a large scale. Anslinger used this racist excuse of saving the youth of America, i.e. the white youth of America, to acquire near-unlimited resources for a nationwide anti-cannabis, i.e. anti-black music, crackdown. For two decades, Anslinger tried to infiltrate the jazz world of cannabis, but he never succeeded in curtailing jazz music. And while the effects of early cannabis prohibition and the demonizing of black music culture has had long-lasting negative effects on society, jazz and blues would successfully go on to shape every aspect of American popular culture. So whether or not one believes the use of cannabis was a contributing factor to the creativity of jazz and blues, there's no denying that communal cannabis use amongst musicians was an integral aspect of the modern music industry. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. You can also access them through our website at sorceresshq.com. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. You can find us online at sorceresshq.com or on Twitter and Instagram at sorceress underscore underscore. Until next time, sorceress fans, stay curious. <laughs>